Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 53, Euripides at War. Last episode, we discussed some of the surviving plays from the earliest part of Euripides' life, the most famous of which was Medea. As the Peloponnesian War exploded forth at the end of the 430s BC, the situation in Athens changed drastically, and so too did the tone of Euripides' plays. At the outset of the war, we see in his plays an underlying theme of patriotic sentiment. The first of those, Heraclidae, or the Children of Heracles, performed in 430 BC, shows a patriotic pro-Athenian, anti-Dorian undertone throughout. As we discussed in episode 47, Eurystheus, the king of Mycenae, either directly or indirectly was responsible for many of the troubles that plagued his cousin Heracles. And so after Heracles' death, in order to prevent his children from taking revenge on him, Eurystheus sought to kill them. He also could have chosen this course of action because of the hatred that he had for Heracles' family. Regardless, they fled under the protection of Iolus, Heracles' close friend and nephew. After many wanderings, they were taken in by Athens and their king Demophon, the son of Theseus and Phaedra. Euripides' play begins at the altar of Zeus at Athens. A herald, sent by Eurystheus, attempts to seize the children of Heracles, as well as Iolus. When Demophon insists that Iolus and Heracles' children are under his protection, the herald threatens to return with an army. Demophon, though, is prepared to protect the children, even at the cost of fighting a war against Eurystheus. But after consulting the oracle, he learns that the Athenians would only be victorious if and only if they sacrifice a maiden of noble birth to Persephone. Demophon tells Iolus that as much as he would like to help, he would not sacrifice his own child or force any of the other Athenians to do so. Iolus becomes distraught because he believes that he and the children will have to leave Athens and seek refuge elsewhere. But when Macaria, one of the daughters of Heracles, hears about the oracle's pronouncement and realizes her family's predicament, she offers herself as the victim. After bidding farewell to her siblings and to Iolus, she leaves to be sacrificed. A spring near Athens was named the Macarian Spring in her honor. Then, Hylas arrives with reinforcements for the upcoming battle with Eurystheus. Although Iolus is old and feeble, he insists on going out to battle anyways. Once there, though, he miraculously regains his youth, and during the battle, after the Athenians and the Heraclidae defeat Eurystheus' forces, Iolaus manages to capture his second cousin Eurystheus. A debate about executing him then follows. Alcmene, Heracles' aged mother, insists that Eurystheus should be executed at once, although such an execution is against Athenian law. The debate continues until finally, Eurystheus tells them a prophecy of how a spirit will protect the city from the descendants of Heracles' children if they were to kill and bury him here. And so after hearing this, it is decided that Eurystheus would be executed and buried in Attica. And with that, the play ends. Just to continue on the myth though, with Eurystheus dead, Helus and his brothers then invaded the Peloponnese, but after a year's long stay, they were forced to withdraw by a plague. They headed north to Thessaly, where Agimius, the mythical ancestor of the Dorian race, adopted Helus and gave to him a third of the part of his territory. 
After the death of Agimius, his two sons, Pamphilus and Dymus, voluntarily submitted to Helus, who thus became the ruler of the Dorians. The three branches of the Dorian race, Helus, Pamphloi, and Dimanes, were thus named after these three heroes, if you recall from previous episodes in the Archaic period. Helus was desirous of reconquering his paternal inheritance, the Argolid, and so he led an assault on the forces of Atreus, the successor of Eurystheus at Mycenae, but he was slain in the process. In the following two generations, his descendants would lead two more unsuccessful attempts, but it was the third generation after Helus, and their fourth overall attempt, that they were finally successful with the result being that the Dorian descendants of Heracles partitioned the territory of the Peloponnese amongst themselves by lot. At least according to myth they did. Listen to episode 7 for more on this. Anyways, Euripides uses this play to attack the ungratefulness of Sparta and Argos towards Athens, because while Athens protected the children of Heracles, who were fleeing their murderous uncle Eurystheus, the Spartans, who claimed to be descendants of Heracles, had recently declared war against Athens. And so as you can see, it was pro-Athenian, anti-Dorian propaganda. The next deceptively anti-Spartan play of Euripides is Andromache, performed sometime between 428 and 425 BC. The play dramatizes the life of the former Trojan princess turned slave, many years after the events of the Trojan War. The divisions of the spoils of Troy gave Hector's widow, Andromache, to Neoptolemus, the son of Achilles. Many years later, Andromache, no doubt unwillingly, had a child with Neoptolemus, named Molassus. Naturally, this led her into conflict with Neoptolemus' new wife, Hermione, the Spartan daughter of Menelaus and Helen. Prior to the Trojan War, Hermione had been betrothed to her cousin, Orestes. Well, Things didn't quite go so well for Orestes, and so that never came to fruition. Hermione and Neoptolemus married ten years after the war. When Telemachus, the son of Odysseus, visited Menelaus in Sparta, he found them celebrating their marriage with a feast. Anyways, now that they were married, Hermione was expected to do what Greek women did back then, that is to produce legitimate male heirs. When she was not able to, Hermione became deeply jealous towards Andromache her husband's concubine, and the mother of his lone child. This jealousy only increased over time. This is where Euripides' play begins. In her prologue, Andromache mourns her misfortune and her persecution at the hands of Hermione. She explains that when Neoptolemus had left for the oracle at Delphi, Hermione, who had been plotting her jealous revenge, finally decided to act and asked her father Menelaus to come and kill her. Fearing for her life and the life of her child, Andromache hid her child and sought refuge in the temple of the goddess Thetis, who was the mother of Achilles, where she is currently clinging to at the beginning of the play. After she finishes her prologue, a maid arrives to warn her that Menelaus has found out the location of her son and is on his way to capture him. A desperate Andromache sends the maid off to seek the help of Peleus, the husband of Thetis, Achilles' father, and the grandfather of Neoptolemus. After Andromache laments her misfortune once again, Hermione arrives. In this scene, she portrays herself as being of high status and wealthy, with her own money, and this makes her seem high-handed. But she also blames Andromache for her inability to become pregnant, 
claiming that she was casting spells on her to keep her barren and that she was attempting to turn her husband against her so that she could displace her. This of course was not true. Andromache did not want anything to do with Neoptolemus and in fact still remained devoted to her dead husband Hector. Menelaus then arrives and reveals that he has found Andromache's son. Upon hearing this, Andromache is beyond grief and no longer has the urge to resist, so she allows herself to be led away. Their double murder at the hands of Menelaus is thwarted just in the nick of time though, by Peleus. He forbids them from harming anyone who is technically his kin, as Molasses is his great-grandson. With Andromache and her son now safe, Peleus exits the stage and Menelaus departs home for Sparta. The final scene of the play involves Orestes, Hermione's former betrothed. He arrives unexpectedly and announces that he killed Neoptolemus at Delphi. He then abducts Hermione, or she goes off with him willingly. It could honestly be both, like another Helen situation. The goddess Thetis appears as a deus ex machina and the play concludes. Rounding off the myth, Hermione and Orestes got married and had a son, named Tissamenes. He became king over Argos, Mycenae, and Sparta upon Orestes' death. Tissamenes, though, was killed in the final battle with the Heraclidae, which we mentioned earlier. Although this play is no doubt a tragedy, it doubles as a scorching satire of the cunning and arrogant ways of the Spartans. The odious character portrayal which Euripides attributes to Menelaus can be seen as a sort of reflection of the feelings towards Sparta that prevailed at Athens at that time. He is portrayed as an arrogant and wicked tyrant, and his daughter Hermione is portrayed as being equally arrogant, while still being excessively jealous over her husband's faithfulness to the point that she would plot the murder of an innocent child and his mother in order to clear her household of rival women and rival sons for the throne. Even Peleus curses Sparta's wickedness several times during the play. Euripides followed that up in 424 BC with Hecuba. This time, though, he moved away from his patriotic, anti-Spartan undertones, seen in the last two plays, to formulate the first of his anti-war plays that demonstrate human suffering with immense power while condemning war and political expedience. Athens had endured the plague and had been at war now for seven long years which after the death of Heracles was being prosecuted by demagogues like Cleon. And so the change in tone and mindset for a jaded Euripides here could possibly be a representation of that of the Athenian people at large. In fact, Odysseus in the play is represented as, quote, agile-minded, sweet-talking, and demos-pleasing, end quote, as a type of wartime demagogue like Cleon that was active in Athens during this point in the Peloponnesian War. The play takes place after the Trojan War, but before the Greeks have departed the Thracian coastline. The central figure is Hecuba, the widowed wife of the recently deceased King Priam, who had been slain by Neoptolemus when Troy was taken. Hecuba was given as a slave to Odysseus. The Greek fleet stopped at some point on the Thracian coast on the way home from Troy, while awaiting for a favorable wind to sail home. In the play's opening monologue, the ghost of Polydorus, the youngest of Hecuba's 19 children, tells that at the start of the war, he had been sent to the court of the Thracian king Polymester for safekeeping, along with gifts of gold and jewelry. But when Troy was taken, Polymester treacherously murdered him and seized the treasure. That night, the ghost of Polydorus haunts his mother Hecuba in her dreams. 
The next scene opens up with Hecuba mourning her family's great losses and worrying about her nightmares. Then, the chorus of young enslaved Trojan women enters and tells her even more devastating news. That being that one of her last surviving daughters, Polyxena, is to be given as a blood sacrifice to the Shade of Achilles. The plot of the play moving forward falls into two clearly distinguishable parts. Hecuba's grief over the fate of her daughter, Polyxena, and the revenge she takes on the Thracian king Polymester. Odysseus then arrives to escort Polyxena to the altar where Neoptolemus will sacrifice her to his father. A grief-stricken Hecuba pleads for Odysseus to spare her, but she is ignored. Polyxena goes willingly though, saying that she would rather die than live as a slave. The chorus then laments their own doomed fate as slaves. When the body of Polydorus, which had washed ashore, is brought on stage, Hecuba reaches new heights of despair and realizes that Polymester had killed her son. She resolves to take revenge, and so she boldly requests the help of Agamemnon, who after all, had taken her now only surviving daughter, Cassandra, as his concubine. Although Polymester was his ally, he reluctantly agrees, so he summons Polymester to come and see him. When Polymester arrives with his sons, Hecuba acts as if she had no idea what he had done. In fact, she pretends to want to help him to take the rest of the Trojan treasure that the Greeks had gotten a hold of. So after telling him of its location, Polymester and his sons rush off the stage. Hecuba follows after them to the location, and with the help of some slaves, she kills his sons and stabs Polymester in the eyes. Of course, this all happened off stage and out of the sight of the audience. Polymester re-enters onto the stage and blindly stumbles around until he finds Agamemnon. Polymester argues to him that Hecuba's revenge was a vile act, where his murder of Polydorus was intended to preserve the Greek victory and dispatch a young Trojan, who was a potential enemy of the Greeks. The arguments take the form of a trial, and Hecuba delivers a rebuttal, exposing Polymester's speech as sophistry. Agamemnon decides justice has been served by Hecuba's revenge. Polymester, again in a rage, foretells the deaths of Hecuba by drowning, and Agamemnon by his wife Clytemnestra. This is where the play ends. Soon after, the winds are finally favorable, and the Greeks set sail to their fates. Hecuba dies at some point in Odysseus' journey home, and of course, we already discussed the fate of Cassandra and Agamemnon in episode 50. Hicatides, or the Suppliants, was put on by Euripides the following year, in 423 BC, and is another play that deals with the devastating emotional consequences of war. The play follows the events of the Seven against Thebes. Creon has taken power in Thebes and has decreed that all the invaders are not to be buried. While Sophocles' Antigone gives us a perspective from the Theban point of view, Euripides' Suppliants gives us an Argive viewpoint. The mothers of the dead seven Argive generals, who all died in the battle, make up the chorus. The play begins with them presenting themselves as suppliants to Aethra, the mother of Theseus, who was praying before the altar of Demeter and Persephone in Eleusis. They appeal to her sympathy as a mother, and so Aethra sends a messenger to Theseus, asking him to come to Eleusis. When Theseus arrives, they supplicate to him as well. So Theseus meets with his friend, the Argive king Adrastus, who appeals to him for help, saying that Theseus is the ruler of the only city with the integrity and the power to stand up to Thebes. 
Theseus, though, is unsure what to do, because he is fearful of repeating Adrastus' mistake. So the Argive mothers beg Aethra to intervene. She reminds her son that he has a duty to uphold the ancient laws of Hellas, meaning the proper burial of the dead, and warns him that his refusal might be interpreted as cowardice. She begins to weep, as if it was her own son out there on the battlefield. Theseus is moved by her tears, and so he agrees to intervene, but only if the Athenian citizens endorse his decision. So he and his mother set out for Athens, followed by Adrastus and the sons of the slain warriors. As they leave, the suppliant women pray that the Athenian people will support Theseus. When the choral interlude is finished, Theseus and his entourage return with the good news that Theseus has received the support of the people. He immediately dispatches his herald to Thebes to request the release of the bodies. If they refuse, the herald is to tell Creon that Theseus will be at his gates with the entire Athenian army. After receiving his message, Creon sends a herald of his own to quote, seek out Athens' ruling despot. When Theseus tells him that Athens is not ruled by a despot, but by the people, the herald mocks him saying that his city Thebes is ruled by one man, not by an ignorant mob that is easily swayed by deceptive words. Theseus responds by saying that in a democracy, every man can make a contribution, if what he says is wise, that is. The herald warns Theseus not to succumb to the patriotic fervor of the populace, and says, quote, If death were before their eyes when they were giving their votes, Hellas would never rush to her doom in mad desire for battle. End quote. Theseus reminds the herald that he does not take orders from Creon, and inserts his right to uphold the ancient customs of Hellas regarding the recovery of the corpses. When the herald warns him against meddling in something that does not concern him, Theseus states his resolve to do what is right and holy. The herald taunts him to bring it on, while Theseus tells his army to prepare for the attack. The herald leaves for Thebes with Theseus and his men in close pursuit. The chorus then expresses their fear of additional violence and bloodshed. After the choral interlude, a messenger arrives to announce the Athenian victory. After describing how Theseus forced the Theban army to retreat into the city, he reports that Theseus restrained his men at the gates, because they had come to rescue the bodies, not sack the city. The messenger says that this is the kind of leader men should choose, one who shows courage and danger, but does not overreach. His sentiments are echoed by Adrastus, who questions why men should choose war instead of settling their disputes with reason. The messenger describes how Theseus himself washed the corpse and prepared them for burial. When Theseus arrives with the corpse, Adrastus and the women engage in a loud lament. At Theseus's suggestion, Adrastus delivers a funeral oration in which he offers the fallen soldiers as models for the Athenian youth to emulate. As Theseus is preparing to leave, Athena appears as a deus ex machina above the temple and instructs Adrastus to pledge never to invade Athens as gratitude for what Theseus has done. She then tells the young orphan boys that they will grow up to avenge the death of their fathers by sacking Thebes. Adrastus and the Argive women and boys depart and the play ends. Of course, the war that Athena prophesizes is the so-called Second Theban War also called the War of the Epigoni, which occurred ten years later. The Epigoni did in fact avenge their fathers, and Thersander, the son of Polynesus and a daughter of Adrastus, took over the throne, honoring his father by achieving what he couldn't. 
Euripides' play praises Athens while reproaching Thebes. Here, Athens is presented as the savior of Hellenism and of true piety, the city where free thought and democratic government originated. The play's purpose was to raise Athenian morale, which had plummeted after plague and seven years of war. Electra was written sometime in the mid-410s BC, and it's unclear whether it was produced prior to or after Sophocles' version of the Electra story, whose date of production is also unknown. Regardless, let's hope that we are all quite familiar with the House of Atreus story by now. If not, definitely listen to episode 50 for Aeschylus' telling of the Oresteia. Euripides, though, made some significant changes to the storyline, which is why we will discuss his version of the play, and not Sophocles' version, which more or less stuck to Aeschylus. Euripides' version, though, has Electra not living unmarried in the palace with her mother and Aegisthus, but instead in a small hut in the countryside. Several years after Agamemnon's death, suitors began to appear, requesting her hand in marriage. So Clytemnestra, fearing that Electra, or her children, may one day seek revenge, decided to marry her off to a poor laborer from Mycenae, rather than a strong neighboring king. Likewise, they exiled her brother, Orestes, placing him under the care of the king of Phocis, where he became friends with the king's son, Pylades. The play begins with Electra explaining her situation and lamenting to the chorus about her struggles and her drastic change in social status. Meanwhile, Orestes, along with Pylades, has grown old enough that he decides to travel southwards to visit his sister. Orestes keeps his identity hidden, though, in order to survey the situation. He eventually realizes that Electra still harbors ill will towards their mother. At this point, an older servant who had brought Orestes to focus many years earlier now enters the play, parodying Aeschylus' play with his recognition scene, while also mockingly making an allusion to Homer's Odyssey. The older servant recognizes Orestes because of a scar on his eyebrow, and the siblings are once again reunited. Orestes then reveals to her his plans to kill Aegisthus and their mother Clytemnestra, thus avenging the death of their father. The murders of these two break from Aeschylus quite a bit though. When Orestes learns that Aegisthus is currently in the stables, preparing to sacrifice oxen for a feast, he and Pylades go to confront and kill him, while Electra sends for Clytemnestra to come visit her, under the guise that she had just delivered a baby boy. A messenger then arrives on stage and describes Orestes' murder of Aegisthus. After Orestes returns to Electra from the stables with Aegisthus' dead body in his hands, Orestes once again wavers on his decision to murder his mother. Instead of Pylades goading him on this time though, it was Electra who convinces him to proceed, and so when Clytemnestra arrives and is lured into the house, Orestes thrusts his sword into Clytemnestra's throat. Clytemnestra's deified brothers, Castor and Pollux, then appear as a duke's ex machina, to tell Electra and Orestes that their mother received just punishment, but their matricide was still a shameful act, and they then instruct the siblings on what they must do to atone for their crime. Euripides' later play, Orestes, for all intents and purposes, will continue the story arc here, and we will cover this later in the episode. Heracles Monominos, or The Madness of Heracles, was performed in 416 BC. Here, Euripides diverges once again from the traditional chronology of myth, this time with Heracles' life. 
He does this in order to drive his point home about the injustice of the gods. Usually, Heracles' labors are a punishment for his murdering of his wife and kids, brought on by a madness sent to him by Hera. But Euripides here has the madness coming after the fact. While Heracles was in the underworld, obtaining Cerberus for his last labor, a man named Lycus made himself the unlawful king of Thebes by killing Creon and seizing the throne. Heracles had married Megara, a daughter of Creon, and so the play begins with Lycus wanting to kill the children of Heracles, his wife Megara, and his mortal father Amphitryon, all of which are seeking asylum and an altar of Zeus. The chorus is made up of the old men of Thebes, who are too feeble and weak to help. Lycus watches them closely in case they try to escape. After a scene in which Lycus levels all sorts of insults at Heracles, he decides that he has had enough of the waiting and orders his men to bring logs of wood to set the altar on fire, in order to burn the suppliants alive. But Megara gives in and says that she'd rather die honorably, because apparently death by fire was cowardice. Anyways, just before Lycus was about to execute his family, Heracles unexpectedly arrives. After learning what has transpired in his absence, he kills Lycus in revenge and saves his family. Immediately afterwards, while the chorus was still celebrating, Hera, in an attempt to get revenge herself for a perpetually unfaithful husband Zeus, sends madness to his son Heracles, who she has hated since his birth. In his madness, he kills his wife and three sons. When he awakes and realizes what he has done, he wishes to commit suicide. But Theseus at that point arrives. Heracles had saved him while he was in the underworld, and unknowingly, he was about to save Heracles. Ashamed, Heracles covers his head in fear of infecting Theseus with this pollution. He then tells Theseus what he has done, but Theseus responds by ordering him to uncover his head, because as he puts it, friendship is greater than any fear he has of pollution from someone guilty of kindred bloodshed. Heracles is not easily comforted though and he says that he can't possibly be welcomed by any man, and that it would be better for him to just commit suicide. Theseus, in response, says that this is nonsense, and even offers him a place to stay at his place in Athens, and half of his wealth. He argues that even the gods commit evil acts, but yet they continue to live on Mount Olympus, and face out their crimes, so why shouldn't Heracles? But Heracles vehemently denies this line of argument. He says that such stories of the gods are merely the inventions of poets. A real deity can have no such desires. Eventually, though, Theseus convinces him that it would be cowardly to commit suicide. Since the law forbids him from remaining in Thebes, or even from attending the funeral of his wife and children, Heracles asks his father to bury his dead family members. And then Heracles leaves for Athens with his friend Theseus, where he will continue with his struggles for the sake of humankind. In this play, Euripides not only alters the traditional plotline of Heracles' life, but he questions traditional theological beliefs too. During Euripides' time, although most Greeks would have been believers in the Olympic deities, there were some who were engaged in a sort of theological revolution by questioning, challenging, and rewriting traditional religion and the existence of the gods, just as Euripides' main character Heracles does in the play. The play shows the story of how Heracles suffers the disgrace of killing his own family. As is typical of an ancient Greek tragedy, the gods have a large hand in it. Hera hates Heracles because he is a living reminder of her husband's infidelity. Because of this, she is cruel to him. She could bring about Heracles' instantaneous death, 
but instead she wants him to suffer. So she sends Madness, a personification deity, to drive Heracles to the brink of insanity, which caused him to unknowingly murder his wife and children. There is much irrationality and senselessness in Hera's vengeance. Furthermore, even though he has been to Hades and has seen Cerberus and the dead souls of others, in a conversation with Theseus, Heracles chooses to believe that the gods, as they were commonly believed to be, do not exist. This point of view may reflect the playwright's own. Even if it does not, it does reflect a viewpoint of Euripides' own time that is asking for more from the morality of its religion. And now, let us take a short break for a word from our sponsors. The History of Ancient Greece is powered by the CLNS Media Network, and today's episode is brought to you by FanDuel. Fantasy football fans, the wait is nearly over. Football season is back, which means FanDuel is back. FanDuel is one-week fantasy football, meaning that there are new contests starting every week, and you get to choose a new team each time. There are no lengthy drafts, and there are no busted seasons due to injuries. There's no season-long commitment either. FanDuel has lots of contests to choose from, starting at just $1. Just pick a contest, choose your team, and watch your score real-time. New users get a free entry into the NFL Sunday Million with over $1 million in cash prizes. Just visit FanDuel.com and sign up with the promo code ANCIENTGREASE. I'll also be doing a listener league, so you'll have the opportunity to play against me and other of the History of Ancient Greece podcast listeners for bragging rights. To join, go to www.fanduel.com forward slash ancient Greece. Once again, you can sign up today by going to fanduel.com, click the join now button, and use the promo code ancient Greece. And then go to www.fanduel.com forward slash ancient Greece to join Ancient Greece's FanDuel League. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. Shifting back once again to the theme of war and devastation, the following year in 415 BC, Euripides produced Troades, or the Trojan Woman, and this play is often considered by scholars to be a commentary on the capture of the Aegean island of Milos and the subsequent slaughter and subjugation of its populace by the Athenians earlier that year. 415 BC was also the year of the scandalous desecration of the Hermae in the Athenians' second expedition to Sicily. So these imperialistic events may also have influenced Euripides. For his efforts though, Euripides won second prize at the city Dionysia, losing to another tragedian named Xenocles. No fragments of his plays are known, but he was parodied often by Aristophanes in his plays. The later Roman author, Alien, accounts for Xenocles' victory over Euripides by saying, quote, The jury was either intellectually incapable of a proper decision, or else they were bribed. End quote. Such was the esteem that the Trojan women would be held by later ancient and even modern critics. Regardless, it could simply have been the case that, just like with his Medea, it was performed third that day and the emotions that Euripides invoked with the Trojan women probably caused quite a stir in the audience. The Trojan women takes place slightly prior to and overlaps somewhat with Euripides' Hecuba, but instead of the play's sole focus being the grief and vengeance of the Trojan queen, it follows the fates of the five royal women of Troy after the city has been sacked and their husbands were killed. In addition to Hecuba, the other four are her eldest daughter Cassandra, her youngest daughter Polyxena, 
and her two daughters-in-law, Andromache and Helen. The play begins with Athena and Poseidon discussing how the Greeks are to be punished because Ajax had raped Cassandra upon an altar of Athena. Then, with the sacking of Troy now complete, a messenger arrives to tell Hecuba her fate, as well as that of her remaining family members. Hecuba is to be taken away with Odysseus, and Cassandra is destined to become Agamemnon's concubine. Cassandra, who can see into the future, is morbidly delighted by this news, because she knows that her suffering won't last long, as she can foresee the disaster that will befall Agamemnon, as well as herself, when he returns home. However, Cassandra is also cursed so that her visions of the future are never believed by those around her. So as she is carried off, she shouts out her future to the Greek guards, but they don't believe her. Andromache then arrives and tells Hecuba that her youngest daughter, Polyxena, has been killed as a sacrifice at the tomb of the dead warrior Achilles. Andromache has been selected to be the concubine of Achilles' son Neoptolemus, and more grave news arrives from a messenger who tells her that her baby son, Astyanax, has been condemned to die as well. The Greek leaders are afraid that the boy will grow up to avenge his father Hector, and rather than take this chance, they plan to throw him off of the walls of Troy to his death. Andromache laments as she is dragged off to her fate. Menelaus then arrives to take Helen back to Greece with him, where a death sentence awaits her. As Helen is being taken off the stage though, the audience watching the play knows that she will ultimately seduce Menelaus into sparing her life, and that he will take her back as his wife and she will become Queen of Sparta once again. The play ends with a messenger returning, carrying with him the dead body of baby Astyanax atop Hector's shield. Since Andromache has already departed, the messenger gives the corpse to Hecuba, who prepares the body of her grandson for burial before she is finally taken off by Odysseus. Throughout the play, many of the Trojan women lament the loss of the land that reared them. Hecuba in particular lets it be known that Troy had been her home for her entire life, only to see herself as an old grandmother watching the burning of her city and the death of her husband, her children and her grandchildren, before being taken away as a slave to Odysseus. At the end of the play, in utter despair, Hecuba deplores the futility of invoking the gods for protection. Here, Euripides once again questioned the senselessness of traditional religion. More empathetically, though, he managed to strip the mythical victories of Troy of their glory by presenting war as an arena where bestial ambitions and man's destructive tendencies are set loose. Euripides' next play, Iphigenia in Tauros, or Iphigenia among the Tarians, was produced sometime between 414 and 412 BC. Euripides here portrays an alternate version to the Iphigenia myth. At the beginning of the play, Iphigenia reflects on how she got into her current situation. She says that Artemis did not permit her to be sacrificed at Aulis. Instead, the goddess substituted a deer at the last second, unbeknownst to Agamemnon, Clytemnestra, and everyone else involved. And Iphigenia was then whisked away to Taurus on the Black Sea, in modern-day Crimea where she is made to serve as a priestess in the temple of a somewhat uncivilized manifestation of Artemis, worship there. Some scholars have argued that this type of escape plot twist for the familiar Iphigenia myth may have been added by the innovative Euripides in order to boost the Athenian morale in the wake of their disastrous Sicilian expedition. Anyways, the Tarians have a strange custom in which any stranger that comes to the shore is sacrificed to Artemis. And so, Iphigenia is commissioned with carrying out the same gruesome task 
that she herself was saved from at Aulis. Also, in the early myths of Artemis, we see that the goddess is demanding blood sacrifices. We will come back to that, though, in a future episode on the cult of Artemis. Action in the play begins with Orestes and Pylades arriving at Taurus. They were there to steal the cult statue of Artemis and bring it back to Athens. The reason for this is because, per Apollo, only when the cult statue is in Athens will Orestes be able to rid himself of the Furies who are hounding him from matricide. But the two managed to get caught and were taken as prisoner by the Tarians. They are brought before Iphigenia, since it is her duty to sacrifice them, as they are strangers in the lands of the Tarians. At first, Iphigenia doesn't recognize her brother, but the sibling's recognition scene is one of the most powerful in the whole of Greek literature. When she realizes that they are from Argos, she interrogates them for information about the Greeks who fought in Troy. She then informs them that she will only sacrifice one of them because she needs one to deliver a letter to her family. Orestes says that he will be the one to be sacrificed, because he brought Pylades along, and it wouldn't be right for him to live while his innocent friend died. While Iphigenia says aloud what her message will be, Orestes then realizes that he is standing right in front of his supposedly dead sister. He reveals himself, but Iphigenia demands proof, so Orestes recounts several anecdotes from their childhood. This is evidence enough for Iphigenia, and the two siblings have a heartfelt embrace. Orestes explains to her what he is doing here, and so she devises a plan to help him and Pylades escape with the cult image of Artemis from the temple. In their flight, they are cut off by Thoas, king of Taurus. Iphigenia explains to him that the strangers arrived with the blood of kin on their hands, and so they, as well as the statue of Artemis, need to be cleansed in the sea before they can be sacrificed to her. Thoas agrees that this must be done, and so he allows the three to exit the temple with a statue, completely unaware that he was duped. But then a messenger arrives, shouting that the three escaped on a ship. When Thoas calls upon his soldiers to run to the shoreline to get in their ships and catch up with them, Athena appears as a deus ex machina, intervening once again on Orestes' behalf, and granting everyone a happy ending. On the command of Athena, Orestes is to bring Iphigenia back to Greece in order to erect a shrine to Artemis at Brauron. Athena says that there, the Greeks will come to celebrate the fact that once the gods demanded human sacrifice and blood to pay for their sins, but now they allow for substitution, just as a deer had been substituted for Iphigenia at Aulis. Iphigenia herself is to hold the keys to the temple of Artemis and to teach young girls how to put to death their old selves so to speak, as they make the transition from girlhood to womanhood. As we mentioned, we will discuss Brauron and the cult of Artemis in a future episode. Ion was also produced sometime between 414 and 412 BC. We haven't really talked about Ion much at all, besides a brief mention at the end of episode 2. He was the supposed founder of the Ionian race, and Euripides' play follows an orphaned Ion as he discovers the true identity of his parents. The play begins with Hermes' monologue. He tells of how Apollo had raped an Athenian woman named Creusa, the daughter of the Athenian king Erechtheus, and the result was a baby boy. But Creusa didn't want the baby, so she left it in a basket, with the expectation that he would be devoured by wild beasts. But Apollo sent Hermes to save the boy and bring him to Delphi, where he would be raised by the Pythian oracle. Many years have passed, though. An action begins with Croesus' husband, Zeuthus, arriving at Delphi. 
He is here to ask the oracle why he has been unable to have a child. The oracle tells Zuthus the first person he encounters when he leaves the oracle's presence would be his son. So when he emerges from the shrine, he embraces a young attendant, not knowing that he was, in fact, Apollo and Creusus' son. He names him Ion because he met him coming out. Zuthus tells him that according to the oracle, he is his son. Obviously, Zuthus interpreted the oracle wrong. She didn't mean that he had literally fathered the next person he saw, but that Apollo was giving him away to him to be his adoptive son. Regardless, Ion is cautious at first, as you might expect, but ultimately agrees that it must be true if it's the will of Apollo. Zuthus then takes Ion back to Creusa, who quite understandably is confused by the situation. She eventually comes to the conclusion, though, that Ion must be Zuthus' son from a slave because he must have found out years ago from the oracle that she was barren. And so she begins to grow very jealous that a bastard child of a foreigner might inherit her father's Athenian throne. She then begins to conspire with her attendants to get rid of him. She decides to have him poisoned that night at his welcoming banquet by slipping into his wine a drop of Gorgon's blood, which her father, Erechthonius, had received from Athena. Divine intervention saves Ion, though, because just as they were about to drink, someone made an ill-omened remark, and so Ion called on everyone to pour out their cups and refill them. The banquet was outdoors, though, and so then a flock of doves descended down upon them and drank some of the wine. Having been poisoned, they died on the spot and thus revealed the plot. As a result, Ion brings a charge of murder against her at a hastily assembled court of Delphian leaders. As the entire city begins searching for her, Creusa seeks sanctuary at the altar of Apollo, just as Ion arrives with sword in hand and a mob at his back. The two accuse each other of treachery and are at a standstill when the Pythia emerges from the temple and shows Ion the basket that he was found in many years ago. Recognizing the basket, Creusa knows immediately that Ion is her son, and so she gets caught up in her emotions and leaps off of the altar to embrace him, even at the risk of her own life. Creusa tells him that she is his mother and she describes the images carved inside the basket. After some initial hesitation, this finally convinced him and he embraces his mother for the very first time. She tells him that Apollo is his father and she abandoned him when he was a baby. Ion isn't fully convinced though, because he was told that Apollo had declared that he was Zuthus' son. As he heads to Apollo's sanctuary to find out the truth from the god, a Dusex Machina appears, in the form of Athena, who says that Apollo was too ashamed to reveal himself for what he had done, but Ion was in fact his and Creusa's son. Athena then tells Creusa to establish Ion as the acknowledged heir to the throne of Athens, and he will become the progenitor of the Ionian race. As she leaves, Athena orders them not to tell Zuthus, but to let him think that Ion is his actual son. She and Zuthus will have two more sons, and those two will establish the Dorian and Achaean races. Helen was produced in 412 BC a year after the Sicilian expedition ended, in which Athens had suffered a massive defeat. About 30 years before the play was put on, Herodotus and his histories argue that Helen had never in fact arrived at Troy, but was in Egypt during the entire Trojan War. The archaic lyric poet Stesichorus also made the same assertion in his Palinode. Euripides' play thus is a variant of their same story, beginning under the premise that rather than running off to Troy with Paris, 
Helen was actually whisked away to Egypt by the gods, who wanted to force the war to happen. The Helen in Troy, then, was actually an Eidolon, or a phantom look-alike. The play begins in Egypt, where King Proteus, who had protected Helen, has died. His son, Theoclymenus, the new king with a penchant for killing Greeks, intends to marry Helen, who after all of these years remains loyal to her husband Menelaus. The Spartan king, though, had gotten into a shipwreck on his way back from Troy, and rumors began to swirl that he had died. But when he arrived at the shores of Egypt, he was astonished to find the real Helen, because he thought she had died in the shipwreck. Absolutely delighted to have his wife back, they come up with a plan to flee Egypt. Helen tells Theoclymenus that she will marry him, but only after she performs a ritual burial of her dead husband at sea, thus freeing her symbolically from her first wedding vows. He agrees, and so as she goes out on a boat to perform the ritual, the couple keep sailing to their escape. Theoclymenus is prevented from pursuing them by the appearance of Helen's demigod brothers, the Dioscori, as a deus ex machina. This is definitely a romantic intrigue play, in both plot and atmosphere, and like Ion and Iphigenia at Taurus, it is representative of another one of those escape from reality type of plays that Euripides was writing during this period of the war. Phoenisi, or the Phoenician women, was produced sometime between 412 and 408 BC. Once again, Euripides wrote this play under the influence of the Athenians' disastrous defeat in Sicily, but unlike his first three, it's not an escape from reality play, but a direct commentary on the consequences of war. The play takes its name from the chorus of women from Phoenicia, who become trapped in Thebes by the war on their way to Delphi. The subject is the same as Aeschylus' Seven Against Thebes, with a few significant changes that are typical of Euripides' plays. Unlike some of Euripides' other plays, the chorus does not play a significant role in the plot, but represents the innocent and neutral people who are very often found in the middle of wartime situations. The play opens with a summary of the story of Oedipus and its aftermath told by Jocasta, who in Euripides' version has not committed suicide. She explains that after her husband blinded himself upon discovering that he was her son, her sons-slash-grandsons, Ateocles and Polynesus, locked him away in hopes that the people might forget what had happened. Oedipus curses them, proclaiming that neither would rule without killing his brother. To avert this, they have agreed to split the country. Polynesus allows Ateocles to rule for one year, and then they would switch. When the year expired, though, Ateocles was to abdicate, allowing his brother to rule for a year but he refused to do so, so his brother led an Argive army on the city to take the throne. Jocasta has arranged for a ceasefire to mediate between her two sons. Patriotism is a significant theme in the story, as Polynices talks a great deal about his love for the city of Thebes, although he ironically has brought an army to its gates, bent on destroying it. Regardless, he remains steadfast in his intents to take the city. Ultimately, it is reported that Eteocles mortally wounded Polynices, who was able to deliver a fatal blow to his brother, and the two died at the same instant. Jocasta, overcome with grief, kills herself immediately. Antigone then enters, lamenting the fate of her brothers. Oedipus emerges from the palace, and she tells him what has happened. After he mourns for the death of his two sons, Creon banishes Oedipus from the country and orders Eteocles but not Polynices, to be buried in the city. 
Antigone fights him over the order and breaks off her engagement with his son Haemon. She decides to accompany her father into exile, and the play ends with them departing for Athens. Euripides' final competition in Athens was in 408 BC, during the waning years of the Peloponnesian War, after both Athens and Sparta and their allies had suffered tremendous losses. One of the plays that he produced for that year was Orestes, which takes place after the events contained in his Electra, or the Libation Bearers by Aeschylus, and before the events contained in the Eumenides by Aeschylus and his Andromache. The subject is Orestes' fate after killing his mother Clytemnestra. The play begins with a soliloquy by Electra, who stands next to a sleeping Orestes. She explains that in an effort to punish her and Orestes for their matricide, the Argives are planning to lay siege to the palace. Shortly after, Helen comes out of the palace under the pretext that she wishes to make an offering at her sister Clytemnestra's grave. After Helen leaves, a chorus of Argive women enter to help advance the plot. Then, Orestes awakes and Menelaus and Tyndarius arrive at the palace. Tyndarius begins to chastise his grandson Orestes, which leads to a conversation with the three men on the roles of humans in dispensing divine justice and natural law. As Tyndarius leaves, he warns Menelaus that he will need him as an ally if he is to maintain control with Agamemnon now gone. Orestes then supplicates himself to his uncle Menelaus, hoping to gain the compassion that Grandfather Tyndarius would not grant in an attempt to get his uncle to speak on his behalf before the assembly of Argive men. However, Menelaus ultimately shuns his nephew, choosing not to compromise his tenuous power amongst the Greeks, who blame him and his wife for the Trojan War. Pylades, Orestes' best friend and his accomplice in Clytemnestra's murder, arrives after Menelaus has exited. Without the support of Menelaus, Orestes and Pylades then exit so that he may state his case before the town assembly in an effort to save himself and his sister Electra from execution. This proves to be unsuccessful though, and with their execution certain, Orestes, Electra, and Pylades formulate a plan of revenge against Menelaus for turning his back on them. To inflict the greatest suffering, they plan to kill his recently reacquired wife Helen and their daughter Hermione. However, when they go to kill Helen, she is nowhere to be found, so they decide to take their bloodlust out on a Phrygian slave that belonged to Helen. The slave begins to supplicate himself before Orestes, so he asks him why he should spare his life. The slave argues that, like free men, slaves prefer the light of day to death, and so the sound logic wins over Orestes. Menelaus then enters, leading to a standoff between him and Orestes, Electra, and Pylades, who has successfully captured Hermione. Just as more bloodshed is about to occur, Apollo arrives on stage as the deus ex machina. He sets everything back in order, explaining that Helen has been placed among the stars, and that Menelaus must leave Argos and go back to Sparta. He tells Orestes to go to Athens to the Areopagus, the new Athenian court, in order to stand trial for his matricide, where he will later be acquitted. Also, Orestes is to marry Hermione, while Pylades will marry Electra. Finally, Apollo tells the mortals to go and rejoice in peace, most honored and favored of the gods. In this play, Euripides challenges the role of the gods, and perhaps more appropriately, man's interpretation of divine will. Orestes, as well as the others, note the subordinate role of man to the gods, but the superiority of the gods does not make them particularly fair or rational. Even Apollo, 
the God synonymous with law and order, ultimately gives an unsatisfactory argument. For example, he cites the reason for the Trojan War as the method that the gods chose to cleanse the earth of surplus population. This leads one to question why gods, or political leaders, would use war as an instrument for a greater good, and this being the cause, why these type of gods or leaders are worthy of our admiration and praise. Some scholars have praised the play as a sharp condemnation of Athenian society. In addition to the will of the gods, the role of natural law and its tension with man-made law is noted. For example, Tyndarius argues to Menelaus that the law is fundamental to a man's life, to which Menelaus counters that blind obedience to anything, such as the law, is an attribute of a slave. Perhaps most important to the play, though, is Apollo's closing statements that peace is to be revered more than all other values. Orestes best embodies this value by sparing the life of the Phrygian slave, driving home the point that the beauty of life transcends cultural boundaries, whether one is a slave or free man. This was also the only successful supplication in the play. This point is of particular value, since the Peloponnesian War had already lasted nearly a quarter of a century by the time of this play's production. Eventually, Euripides migrated to the rustic court of King Archelaus of Macedonia. Although he was a northerner, who were traditionally looked down upon by the southern Greeks, Archelaus was known as a man of culture, and in particular, in his new palace at Pella, he hosted great poets and tragedians, including Agathon and Euripides. Agathon, who lived from 448 to 400 BC, was a close friend of Euripides, but unfortunately all of his tragic works have been lost. He is best known though for being the subject in Plato's Symposium, which describes the banquet given in celebration of his first tragedy competition victory. Aristotle credits him with certain innovations in Greek theater, as he was the first playwright to write choral parts that were apparently independent from the main plot of the plays. While at Arcesilus' court, Euripides composed a play in the Macedonian king's honor, titled Arcesilus. It has been lost, but we know that it described the mythical beginnings of the Macedonian ruling dynasty, beginning with their founder's exile from Argos, who was also named Archelaus, and his foundation of Agai. It was also at Archelaus' court, where Euripides died in 406 BC. He, like Aeschylus, was said to have met a very tragic, almost ironic end, as he was supposedly torn to death by the hunting dogs of the Macedonian king. Before his death, though, Euripides wrote three plays that won first prize at the city Dionysia posthumously the following year in 405 BC, produced either under the direction of his son or his nephew. Of these three, the Bacchae and Iphigenian Aulus have survived. Alcmaeon in Corinth has not survived, except for a few fragments. Iphigenia in Alidi, or Iphigenia at Aulis, revolves around Agamemnon and his fateful decision that ultimately set into effect the sequence of consequences that were portrayed a half-century earlier by Aeschylus in his Oresteia. Agamemnon had gathered his troops at Aulis in Boeotia, with the Greek fleet readying to sail for Troy, but they weren't able to sail because of an opposing wind. After consulting with the seer Calchas, the Greek leaders learned that this was no mere meteorological abnormality, but it was sent by Artemis, because Agamemnon had killed a young deer and thus offended her. Calchas informed Agamemnon that in order to appease her, she demanded that he sacrifice his own eldest daughter, Iphigenia. 
This puts Agamemnon in a tricky situation. If he refused the goddess, this might lead to mutiny and the downfall of the Greek leaders, as his assembled troops, who have been waiting on the beach and were increasingly growing restless, may rebel if their bloodlust is not satisfied, because their leader has put his family above them. And so, he sent a message to his wife, Clytemnestra, telling her to send Iphigenia to Aulis on the pretext that the girl is to be married to the greatest of the Greek warriors, that being Achilles, before he sets off to fight. The play begins with Agamemnon having second thoughts about going through with the sacrifice of his daughter, but he is persuaded by Menelaus that it must be done. When Clytemnestra and Iphigenia arrive, along with their baby brother Orestes, they quickly discover the truth. So too does Achilles. Furious at having been used as a prop in Agamemnon's plan, Achilles vows to defend Iphigenia, initially more for the purposes of his own honor than to save the innocent girl though. The conflict between Agamemnon and Achilles over the fate of the young woman portends a similar conflict between the two at the beginning of the Iliad with Briseis. In his depiction of the experiences of the main characters, Euripides frequently uses tragic irony for dramatic effect. When Achilles tries to rally the Greeks against the sacrifice though, he finds out that the entire Greek army, including the Myrmidons under his personal command, demand that Agamemnon's wishes be carried out. So as Achilles prepares to defend Iphigenia by force, realizing that she has no hope of escape, Iphigenia begs Achilles not to throw his life away for a lost cause. Over her mother's protests, and to Achilles' admiration, she consents to her sacrifice, declaring that she would rather die heroically, and thus win renown as the savior of Greece, than be dragged unwillingly to the altar. Leading the chorus in a hymn to Artemis, she goes to her death, with her mother Clytemnestra so distraught as to foreshadow the repercussions that will come in the years to follow. The play, as it exists in the manuscripts, ends with a messenger reporting that Iphigenia has been replaced on the altar by a deer. It is however generally considered that this is not an authentic part of Euripides' original text, and was added in later, possibly to make his previously performed Iphigenia and Taurus to mesh together. We will discuss the plot of the Bacchae in far greater detail in a future episode, as it gives us tremendous insight into the Dionysian mysteries. Artistically, though, in the Bacchae, Euripides restores the chorus and messenger speeches to their traditional role in the tragic plot, and the play appears to be the culmination of a regressive or archizing tendency in his later works. The Bacchae is thus distinctive for the fact that the chorus is integrated into the plot not just as a commentator, and the god is not a distant presence, but a character in the play. Indeed, he's the messenger and the protagonist. Composed in the so-called uncivilized lands of Macedon, the Bacchae also happens to dramatize a primitive side to Greek religion, and some modern scholars have therefore interpreted this particular play biographically as a kind of deathbed conversion or as a renunciation of atheism. At one time, the interpretation that prevailed was that the play was an expression of Euripides' religious devotion because after a life of being critical of the Greek gods and their followers, the author finally repented of his cynicism and wrote a play that honors Dionysus. Then, at the end of the 19th century, the opposite idea began to take hold. It was thought that Euripides was doing with Abakai what he had always done, that is, he was pointing out the inadequacy of the Greek gods and their cults, which were based on these myths. 
Others have suggested that it was the poet's attempt to ward off the charge of impiety that was later to overtake his friend Socrates, or as evidence of a new belief that religion cannot be analyzed rationally. Regardless of his intents, although his Medea is without a doubt his most popular and famous play, the Bacchae is considered by critics to be not only Euripides' greatest tragedy, but one of the greatest ever written, modern or ancient. Aeschylus and Sophocles were innovative, but Euripides had arrived at a position in the ever-changing genre of theater, where he could move easily between tragic, comic, romantic, and political effects, a versatility that appears in individual plays and also over the course of his career. Potential for comedy lay in his use of contemporary characters, in his sophisticated tone, his relatively informal Greek, and in his ingenious use of plots centered on motifs that later became standard in Menander's new comedy. But before we get there, we have old comedy to talk about, that being the pungent political satire of Aristophanes during the Peloponnesian War. And so join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 54, Old Comedy and Aristophanes. (music) 